10, or if you don't, should be up on the screen here. Inside your bulletin, you should find an outline of the message, and you can track with it there. Or if you'd like, there are full printed messages of the uh, manuscript of the message, and you can get one of those now or later as you like. There's extra verses in there that I don't have time to turn to and go into and so on, but you can look those up later and see how the Scripture ties together. And all of the messages of the last 22 years are on the church website and uh, both audio and printed messages. This morning we come to Jesus as the door to abundant life, and our text is John uh, chapter 10 and verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The American dream, as, as you know, is to pursue what people call the good life. The good life usually means owning your own home, having a couple of late model cars in your garage or driveway, and maybe a few extra toys for weekends, uh, taking nice vacations and eventually retiring with plenty of uh, money so you have a comfortable life to pursue whatever you like doing. Uh, We see the rich and the famous who supposedly have achieved this good life on the cover of magazines like People and all through those pages, and uh, their opulent lifestyles are there to entice us, and, and we live vicariously through them and think, well, maybe someday I too will strike it rich and live the good life. But While many Americans are financially comfortable and uh, have achieved this American definition of the good life, most of them, sadly, have missed what Jesus calls the abundant life. Uh, They do not know all that Jesus promises to those who follow him. Now, what is the abundant life? I need to define it because... There's a whole segment of Christianity that defines it as having health and wealth. In other words, material prosperity. Um, And really, those who do so, those who believe that, they're just baptizing the American dream, the materialism of our country, adding a few Christian labels to it. And except for their outlandish hairdos and their... Uh, Christian jargon, all of these prosperity preachers are really not much different than those in the world in terms of their goals and what they're living for, but that is not the abundant life. The abundant life that Jesus promises has nothing to do with collecting more stuff. The abundant life that Jesus promises has to do with being reconciled to God through faith in Christ And having the hope of spending eternity in his presence where, as the Apostle Paul puts it, we will be learning the uh, manifold and and infinite riches of Christ throughout all of eternity. That's the riches that uh, we are promised. 
Paul himself, as you know, was not rich in this world's goods. He said he was content just to have food and covering, but he was rich toward God. And the way he discovered those riches, he says, was when he counted all else as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Now, in our text, Jesus claims to be the door through which his sheep enter to experience this abundant life. Jesus, when he says, I am the door, it's the third time Jesus has made one of these I am the uh, statements. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door. And there will be four more of these. And what that means when Jesus says that is, he himself is the message. Uh, Christianity is not primarily a rule of religion and ritual and all of that. Christianity is Christ, knowing Christ and knowing the riches of Christ that he promises. Now, our text is teaching us then that Jesus is the only door to abundant life for all who will enter through him. You'll notice that Jesus begins using the words truly, truly. And I've said we tend to brush over those words, but they're words that ought to reach out and grab you by the lapel and say, perk up, wake up, this is important, don't miss this. That's the effect of truly, truly. Notice verse 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, we have here today four verses, four important truths. The first one is the one I just read, verse 7. Jesus is the only door of the sheep. Up in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, I described the fact that probably the picture was a common sheepfold in the village. The shepherds would go out from the village with their individual flocks during the day and shepherd the flock on the hillside. At night, they would bring them into the common fold where they hired a doorkeeper, and the shepherds could go to their respective homes and spend the night, come back in the morning, the doorkeeper would open to them, and they would lead their flocks out again. Now down in verse 7, probably the picture has changed to the countryside, and in the summer, the shepherds would lead their flocks further afield, out into the farther country, And they couldn't get back to the village at night. And so the shepherd would build an enclosure for his own little flock. And at night they would go in. And often, because he didn't have building materials out there, he would lie down in the door of the sheepfold. And so in that way, he and Jesus being pictured as a shepherd could be two things at once. He was the shepherd of the sheep and he is the door of the sheepfold. And Jesus is both. And as the door, of course, he lets in the true sheep, but he keeps out all of the predators and the thieves and so on that want to destroy the flock. G. Campbell Morgan tells of a conversation he had with a man named uh, Sir George Adam Smith, who was a scholar who had spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Smith told Morgan about uh, meeting a shepherd And the shepherd showed him the fold where uh, he kept the sheep at night. It was just four walls and then an opening. And Smith said to the shepherd, "Uh, that's where you go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. Um, He said, uh, when the sheep go in there, they are perfectly safe. 
Well, Smith asked him, he said, but there's no door. And the shepherd replied, I am the door. Now, he wasn't a Christian shepherd. He was a, an Arab, probably a Muslim man. But he was using the very language that Jesus uses here. He said, I am the door. And he explained further. Uh, he, he said, when the light is gone and the sheep are inside, I lie in that open space. And no sheep goes out except over my body. And no predator or wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. He said, I am the door. And Jesus is the door, and he's the only door of the sheep. Now, J.C. Ryle points out, no prophet or uh, no uh, apostle could make a claim and say, I am the door of the sheep. Only Jesus, the Messiah, could make that claim. It's an exclusive claim. There is only one door of the sheep. It's the same as when Jesus will say in John 14, 6, which most of you have memorized, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's very exclusive. And so just as there was only one door into the ark, just as there is only one door into the tabernacle, so Jesus is the only door for sheep to enter the fold and experience the abundant life he promises here. The Apostle Paul said a similar thing in Ephesians 2.18 when he said, For through him, that is through Christ, we both, and he meant Jewish and Gentile believers, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus is the only way. When you talk with unbelievers, they're okay with it when you say Jesus is a way to God. No problem. They'll say, yeah, you know, Muhammad is another way, Buddha is another way, nature is another way. There are many ways to God, all ways lead to the top. They're, they're fine with that. But the minute you say, no, no, Jesus is the only way to God, then they bristle and start accusing you of being intolerant and bigoted. Uh, sadly, even C.S. Lewis, who many of his writings are very fine and most of mere Christianity is good, but in that book, he writes something that's really disturbing. He says this, There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion with which are, are, which are in agreement with Christianity, and then this is really disturbing, who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. Huh? <laughs> For example, he says, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and leave in the background, though he might still say he believed, the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. That is just a huge lapse of understanding on Lewis's part because he's missing the cross. You see, I, if, if a Buddhist happens to believe what we believe about showing mercy, fine and good, but if he doesn't believe in the cross of Christ, he is not a Christian. He, he has not had his sins forgiven. Um, there, there's only one way. And you see, good Buddhists or, or good Catholics 
or for that matter, good Baptists don't get into heaven because their morality happens to coincide with Christian teaching. Anyone who is saved must come through the door, and Jesus is the only door. They must believe in him. Peter, uh, in Acts 4.12, is speaking to good Jews. And here's what he tells those religious Jews. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He's saying Jesus is the only way, the only door. Not only that, but since Jesus is the only door, then the second truth of verse 8 follows, and that is all others claiming to be the door are thieves and robbers. Note verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the, the sheep did not hear them. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying that men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the other godly prophets were thieves and robbers, but in the context, he's talking about those who are preying on the sheep, using the sheep for their own advantage. They don't care about the sheep. He is especially, as we saw last time, talking about the Pharisees, who should have been good shepherds of Israel, but instead were um, treating them as they had treated the man born blind, kicking him out of the synagogue because he was following Jesus. And so uh, they were false shepherds. They were like the ones that Ezekiel uh, condemns in Ezekiel 34, uh, or like the ones the Lord speaks against in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. And then the Lord goes on to describe how he himself is going to gather his flock together, regather them, and raise up what he calls a righteous branch for David. Um, And then he adds in verse 6, In his days, the days of this righteous branch of David, which is Jesus, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name, his name, with which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jesus goes on in verse 8 and repeats the same truth he said up in verse 5. And that is that the true sheep will not hear, meaning they will not follow the voice of a false shepherd. Uh, In other words, they're going to persevere by following Jesus. Now, sometimes the Lord's sheep will veer for a while. Maybe some of you have strayed from the Lord for a while. But those who know his voice will follow him. They will come back to him and they will persevere. Uh, Jesus says the same thing down in verses 27 and 28 of our text. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. That's the mark of sheep. They follow the the shepherd, Jesus. Uh, Then he adds, I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, in 1 John 2.19, John indicates that there were some false teachers in the early church who uh, left 
And John explains it this way. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So true sheep stay with the shepherd. That's his point. Uh, False sheep follow others. So first of all, Jesus says he's the only door of the sheep. The only way into the fold is through Jesus. Second, he says all others who claim to be the way are false shepherds. They're thieves and robbers. And then he goes on to talk about the spiritual implications of him being the door. In verse 9, he shows as the door, Jesus provides three things. Salvation and safety and sustenance for any who will enter through him. Notice verse 9 again. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he'll go in and out and find pasture. And there are two things here to consider. First of all, that Jesus is the only source of salvation, safety, and sustenance for his sheep. Salvation, he says, if they come in through me, they'll be saved. Uh, Safety, that's pictured in going in and out, as I'll explain in a moment. And then finding pasture pictures the sustenance that Jesus gives his sheep. So first of all, Jesus says he provides salvation for his sheep. Whoever comes, enters through me, he says, will be saved. Now, of course, in the sheep analogy, what he means is they'll be protected from the wolves. But I believe there is a deeper spiritual meaning behind being saved. Because as we saw back in John three seventeen, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so being saved means not to be judged by God someday when you stand before him. I think, and I've said this before, that we often as Christians toss around the word saved without realizing it's a really radical word. In other words, if you're doing okay as you are, you don't need to be saved. You might need a little advice. You might need a little help here and there, but you don't need to be saved. Uh, Sometimes I've been hiking in the woods and get a little confused and Maybe along comes a hiker, and I say, which way is the way to so-and-so? And And he'll tell me, and I say, thank you. See, I didn't need to be saved at that point. I just needed some advice to get out of there. Um, When you need to be saved is when you're going to die if you don't get help, outside help. You can't save yourself. You're in bad shape, and uh, you need to be rescued. Maybe that's a better word than saved, and so they send out the search and rescue folks to save your life. Um, Last week, as Marla was hiking out of the Grand Canyon with my grandsons, uh, there was a man who had hit his head, and they brought in a helicopter to rescue him. He he would have died in there if he hadn't gotten help. That's what it means to be saved. Now, in spiritual terms, the Bible is clear that before you believe in Christ— you're not just wounded and about to die, you're dead. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And uh, he goes on and says, we were children of wrath. That means we were all under God's just 
penalty of judgment. And we were heading for eternal wrath should we die physically before we come to Christ. Um, John used the same term in John 3.36 when he said, If you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God abides on you. In other words, God is justly going to penalize you for your sins. And if you die in that condition, there is that eternal penalty on you. So being spiritually dead, there's no way you can rescue yourself. You need life. You need outside intervention to give you life. And that's exactly what Jesus, uh, why Jesus came. God sent his son into this world to give life to those who were spiritually dead. And on the cross, he bore the wrath that, that we deserve so that we would not incur that judgment. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 uses the shepherd and sheep analogy and puts it like this. It says, He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And then he explains, For you were continually straying like sheep, But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And I'm not going to make the assumption that every person here has done that. So I just want to ask you to ask yourself, have I taken refuge in Christ? Is he my only hope of averting the wrath of God someday when I stand before him that I can plead? No, I I entered the fold through Jesus. Jesus is my hope. That is what it means that Jesus saves those who enter through him. Secondly, Jesus provides safety for his sheep. Safety. And that's the main idea behind the picture of the sheep going in and out to find pasture. Uh, William Barclay says this was the Jewish way of describing a life that is absolutely secure and safe. Uh, The picture was this. In the ancient world, many of the cities were walled to keep out enemies. If the enemy was not invading the land, and if the ruler of the land was maintaining law and order, the people of the village could go in and out freely. They didn't need to worry about personal safety. If the land was under siege, they couldn't go in and out. They had to stay within the walls to be safe. Um, Moses used this language when he was praying for a successor as he knew he was about to die. In Numbers 27, 16 and 17, he says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, that's shepherding language, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And, of course, Jesus fulfilled that ultimately in being the good shepherd of his sheep. And so the idea is when Jesus, the good shepherd, is guarding his flock, then we're free to go in and out and find pasture. Uh, the term also, to go in and out, was a, a Hebrew expression that, that meant to have familiar interaction or access. For example, in Acts one twenty one, Peter mentions the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. He had easy access to us and us to him. 
And then in Acts chapter 9 and verse 28, it mentions how, remember when Paul got converted and he came to Jerusalem, the apostles were afraid of him because he had been killing Christians. And so Barnabas went and found out that he really was converted and gave his uh, testimony to Barnabas. And Barnabas ran interference. And then it says that Paul was moving about freely in Jerusalem. And literally, the Greek text is, Paul was going in and out of Jerusalem, meaning he had easy access to the apostles and others there in Jerusalem. And so the, the spiritual picture is this. If you've entered the fold through Jesus then he is both the shepherd and the door, and he provides safety and he provides familiar access. You can go through Jesus to the Father at any time. You can come in and out through Jesus and find pasture and know that he's guarding you. So Jesus provides salvation. He provides safety. And then thirdly, he provides sustenance for his sheep. And that's the picture behind pasture and also the abundant life that we'll look at in verse 10. It's not pointing to having an abundance of material goods, as I've said, but rather it's the sole satisfaction that you get as a sheep when Jesus is your shepherd. Uh, You're familiar, I trust, with Psalm 23, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And the picture there is of a contented sheep. The shepherd provides a table for his sheep in the presence of his enemies so that he can eat freely and be guarded. Um, so that your cup overflows. It says the shepherd even goes with you through the valley of the shadow of death. So the picture isn't a trouble-free life. You've got enemies. You've got the valley of the shadow of death. But it's a secure life in the shepherd because he provides that sustenance for you and meets all of your needs as you go in and out through him as the door. John G. Mitchell was a well-known Bible teacher and pastor in his day. And he one time asked a man named W.R. Newell, who had written a commentary on the book of Romans. I have that commentary on my shelf. But he asked him, he said, how many times have you taught the book of Romans? And Newell said, I have taught the book of Romans 80 times. And then he added, and the pastures are still green. I like that. I mean, do the math. 80 times, if you've been teaching the Bible for 40 years, that's twice a year. But he was still getting fed through the book of Romans as he studied it and as he taught it. That's the pasture we have. Now, I'm going to get controversial on you for a minute. Please bear with me and listen to what I have to say, and I'd be glad to talk to any of you afterwards, anytime, about this. I've done a lot of thinking on it. As many of you know, I'm not in favor of people that say they're Christian counselors and then they mingle psychology with the Bible and it really comes out that psychology is the help they're offering, not the Bible. Same thing goes with regard to these very popular, and they're in many churches, 12-step groups that uh, claim to give help to people with addictions. And often I've been asked the question, well, Steve, if psychology or the 12-step programs really help people, what's wrong with them? And I want to explain to you. What's wrong with them, in a nutshell, is they are not Christ-centered. They are not directing people to Jesus Christ as the solution to their problem, as the one who will feed their soul with him. Um, I used to be supportive of those various methods, 
And then I read a book by a well-known Christian psychologist that kind of drew the line in the sand for me. And what he said was, uh, some of us, including himself, have tried what he calls the standard Christian answers. And by that, he says, faith, obedience, more time in the word, more time in prayer. And then shockingly, he says, those things are worthless medicine. Now, let me share with you something that works. And the rest of his book is really, if you've studied psychology at the university, you could spot it. It's just a veneered version of developmental psychology with some verses and a Christianizing uh, cover put over it. But it's, it's worldly. It's not Christ that he's offering to people for their problems. And the same is true of these 12-step things. I, I was in favor of them, and I was even going to bring one of the programs into our church in California. And uh, my associate gave me a book called The 12 Steps for Christians. And I began to read it and grew more and more and more alarmed with what it was saying because it was promoting selfism. It was saying, in effect, you have helped others all these years and you've never loved yourself sufficiently. And so if you want to help others, you have to learn to love yourself. And that's what the 12 steps are all about. And the manual even said, you need to trust in the steps. The steps will work miracles in your life. It wasn't you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can work miracles in your life. It's trust the steps. And you see, in the situation... Christ can be defined however you want him. You know, your higher power. And so he's not central to the program. The steps are central, and your higher power can be anything you want it to be. That's extraneous to the program. And you're using your higher power to get what self wants. So do you want to be sober? Oh, yes, yes. Use Christ, uh, use your higher power and the steps, and the steps will work. Or, you know, are you dealing with an alcoholic family member and it's very difficult? The steps, again, will provide your solution. Now, let me give you just a brief crash course on my theology of suffering. I believe God brings suffering into our lives so that we will learn more of Christ. I think that's the reason, whatever your suffering, whatever your problems, and we all have them, It's to drive you to see more and more of the riches of Christ for your soul. And if I come along and I say, I maybe wouldn't say it this way, but I, I in effect say, you don't need Christ. Try the steps. That'll work. You see what I've just done? I've short-circuited God's very purpose for bringing the trial into your life. That you would learn Christ is what I need. Christ is my all in all. Christ is everything to the believer. He is my my soul satisfaction in the midst of these trials. He is my good shepherd. See, all of these trials should draw us to Christ. And so, as the door, Jesus then provides our salvation. He provides our safety. And he is our sustenance. Again, if you'd like to talk to me about that, I'd be glad to. Um, I... Like I said, I used to be in that stuff, but I have renounced it, and I believe Christ is what we need. But it's not automatic, and that's the second thing here. 
even though Jesus is our salvation, safety, and sustenance, those blessings are only for those who enter through him. Notice verse, verse 9. If anyone enters through me. Now, it's open to anyone and everyone. That's about as broad as it can be. If anyone, that's you, if you'll enter through Jesus, then he promises to meet those needs. But he's the only way. He's the only way. When you say, wow, how then do I enter? Well, you enter. Uh, how you enter is the theme of the entire book of John. We have already seen repeatedly. I've mentioned John twenty thirty one, where John says, These things I've written so that you may, here's the key, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, notice what you get, Believing you may have life in his name. Life. It's what we'll see in verse 10. Jesus came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It's what we need is life. It's through believing. Uh, or John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. Children implies life. Even to those who believe in his name. And he goes on to say how they were born uh, of the will of God. Or the familiar John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, here it is, but have eternal life. Life comes through believing in Christ. And so to enter Jesus as the door means that you personally believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who died for your sins, who was raised again through the power of God, who is there to impart life to everyone who will call upon him. So again, without assuming so, may I ask, have you done that? Have you believed in Jesus as your only hope of eternal life? Now, maybe there are some of you who are younger here today, and maybe you're thinking, you know, someday I want to do that. I really do plan to believe in Jesus someday, but I'd like to have a little fun first, you know? I'd like to experience what the world has to offer first. That is a tragic mistake. Somebody between services told me he was at the hospital yesterday to visit a young man, and he said uh, he's going to be a donor. In other words, he's going to die. So it's a mistake because we don't know we got all day to believe in Jesus, but it's a mistake Because as the fourth verse here, verse 10, shows, Jesus' purpose for his sheep is radically opposed to the purposes of these false shepherds. We're looking at abundant life versus destruction and death. See verse 10? The thief comes only to kill or steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life And have it abundantly. So there are only two ways to live. Two and only two ways to live. You can pursue this world for your satisfaction. And you'll end up getting destroyed. Or you can pursue Jesus. And you'll have life, he promises. And that more abundantly. The Eskimos have an interesting way of killing wolves. They take a sharp knife and dip it in seal fat and plant it blade up in the snow. Wolves love seal fat, 
And so they smell the seal fat, and they come, and they start licking the knife. And as soon as they lick the knife, they taste something else they love, blood. And so they start licking it with a frenzy, getting more and more blood, thinking that it's going to satisfy their need, and it ends up killing them. You see how that's parallel to following the world? You follow the world, and at first, it satisfies. The Bible is very plain. There are pleasures in sin. But those pleasures will destroy you. And the more and more you go for them, the more and more you're just digging your grave. They're going to destroy you. Only Christ gives eternal life. Only Jesus can give you real life, life that he calls here abundant life. It starts now, and it gets better and better through all eternity. Many of you know the name Matthew Henry. He wrote a commentary back in the uh, <clears throat> late 16, early 1700s. It's still used today, widely. He was dying in the year 1714. He was 52 years old. He had already lost his first wife. He had lost three children. And here he is dying relatively young, 52. He could have had grounds to complain, I suppose. But he said to a friend, You've been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine, that a life spent in the service of God in communion with him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in this present world. It's the most comfortable and pleasant life that we can live in this world. There's a TV show. I I thought it was off the air, but somebody emailed me and said, no, it's still on the air. It's called Let's Make a Deal. Some of you have seen it. It's a game show. And the contestants are usually offered a nice prize that they can see, maybe a new stereo or TV set or something like that. Or they can choose something that's hidden behind the curtain or the door. And they don't know what it is. And sometimes when they pick the thing behind the door, it's a joke. You know, like, ah, you just won 10,000 boxes of toothpicks. Congratulations. And they're going, oh, great. You know, I gave up this nice TV set for 10,000 boxes of toothpicks. But sometimes they, they choose the stereo or the TV set, and they pull open the door, and there's a beautiful car. And when that happens, your stomach kind of goes, oh, man. You know, they could have had that, and they chose this. Well, the world offers you its prizes. You know, here it is. It's glitchy. But there's an unseen prize behind the door, and it's not a joke. The Bible promises that eye is not seen and ear is not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. And that's the prize. That's the thing we should be living for is what God says is abundant life, true life. And it's only to be had through believing in Jesus and walking with him, having him as your good shepherd. I pray that's true of all of us. Let's bow together. Father, I would ask that if any are here who have never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you would show them that the world is going to destroy them, 
it offers a prize, but it's a paltry prize, and it's one that's going to do them damage. That only Jesus offers true riches and eternal life, abundant life that begins now and only gets better when we step beyond the veil into your presence. Help us to live that life, Lord. I pray for those who are struggling with serious problems, that rather than turning to the world for solutions, they would see that Christ is the satisfaction they need, that Christ is the solution they need, that they would trust in him more and more and more, that though they are weak, they would be strong in him, that their sufficiency would be in his grace, that we might proclaim his excellencies to all the world. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.